This is the State of Inclusion podcast, where we explore topics at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and community. In each episode, we meet people who are changing their communities for the better, and we discover actions that each of us can take to improve our own communities. I'm Amy Sanders. Welcome. Today, we are happy to welcome Kimberly Archie. She's CEO and Principal of Knowledge Plus Skills Equal Options Consulting. Kimberly works with nonprofits and local governments across the country. She also works with higher education and private organizations to help all of them serve their clients and communities more equitably. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for joining us today. I was particularly interested in talking with you because of the perspective you have across multiple communities and multiple organizations. And you've worked with neighborhoods in Seattle. You headed and helped found the Office of Equity and Inclusion in Asheville, North Carolina. And you now consult with different communities and different organizations. You've seen a lot, I'm sure. So we really want to get your perspective on that. But first, I'd like to ask you a question about what brings you to this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion? What brings you here and what is it that you want to accomplish with this work? I would say that I learned about the idea of equity and racial justice in the early 2000s through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which is based out of New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, attended some trainings with them and realized that what I had been feeling and experiencing growing up in Seattle had much more of an explanation than I originally thought. And so this is where I learned about systemic racism, institutionalized racism. I also learned about, you know, the the cultural pieces of white supremacy, and it just all clicked. And I've been a person that was raised to be of service in many different ways, but I wanted to At that point of learning more about racial justice, equity, racial equity, I figured out that that's how I wanted to be of service. So I truly believe this is my purpose in life. It's the reason I'm here is to encourage and educate as well as provide the skills necessary for more practitioners of racial equity. I do it through city, working with cities or municipalities, counties, state government, but also in the private sector, because it's going to take all the institutions that control people's lives and the different parts of people's lives to operate more equitably if we're going to see a change, a change in conditions for our our communities, especially our communities that are most negatively impacted by the injustices that um, have occurred over, you know, centuries of time. That's a big purpose, but you (laughs) have worked with a lot of communities on that purpose. You helped establish the Office of Equity and Inclusion in Asheville, North Carolina, and you advise, as you said, organizations and communities, cities, counties. What advice would you give to cities or counties or those in leadership roles who wish to build a more equitable community, where should they start? How do you get started with a community when they want to work on this? That's a, another good question. 
my advice to anyone interested in this work is to really look in within first. So although uh, systems are made, our systems have been made to create the inequities that we see and the disparities that we see in our communities, systems are run by people. And so people, the individuals, especially those in power, need to understand how we got here. So they need to have a a really good understanding of our racialized history, our patriarchy that has been in control, as well as how our, what I want to call it, how settler colonialism, especially in the United States, has impacted people of color, Native American, indigenous people, as well as African Americans being kidnapped from Africa and brought to the United States to to work uh, for free. So an understanding of how our policies and our laws and our history have harmed people, I think is a really important place to start. I also believe that listening to the community members that are most impacted, who are usually the folks that are not heard and listened to. Uh, I talked about those in power a little earlier in my answer and um, getting to understand the idea of sharing power instead of having power over everyone, especially in government. Government should not be, especially, again, the tenets of the United States are about uh, government of the people, you know, by the people, for the people. And we don't operate that way all the time, most of the time. And the people that are hurting the most are the ones that are, that are harmed the most are the ones that we should be paying attention to, not those that are, have been benefiting the most. So again, I would start with looking within how understanding our racialized history and how are our organizations, our government institutions, municipalities continuing to harm people. And you can look at your data and listen to the, the stories and the, and the, you know, the pain of, and the experiences of people in communities to get an idea of what's going on, where the pain points, where they're harmed, and um, how government can do something about that. We have to be able to admit to ourselves first, you know, identify and recognize as government entities that we've harmed folks. In Asheville, they started the conversations about reparations because there was a realization that there was harm done to certain groups. Other cities that I know of across the country are doing the same thing, have already started talking about reparations or just beginning to start talking about reparations. All of those kinds of conversations are because there's a realization that harm has been, uh, has occurred and they want to do something to repair or restore the communities that, um, that they're having these conversations in. Changing city and county governments to be more inclusive and equitable, either from the inside or the outside, is certainly a political process. There's no question about it. How do you feel politics factor into making and sustaining systemic and long-term positive change? 
That's a really tough question, Amy, because yes, politics do play into it. However, policies are how we got here. And regardless of your political leanings, thinkings, beliefs, perspectives, etc., the fact remains we are where we are currently because of policies, practices, and procedures that have been embedded in our system and created divisions, created harm, created injustices, and created disparities where there didn't have to be. Yes, politics play into it. I am the type of person that I don't, I try not to fall into the politics. I'm not interested in the politics so much as in the policies. I want to see us operate differently. There's a lot of times there's losers, winners and losers when it comes to politics. And then it ebbs and wanes because of who's in um, political power. People are sometimes political hostages. And that is not part of my belief system to, to operate that way. So I am a person that believes in operating from understanding the data, the qualitative and quantitative data that shows us, that points to where there's harm, where there's injustice, and doing something about it, not sitting by and playing, you know, politics with people's lives. Yeah, so it's a it's a difficult point because I'm also like you. I'm a very data-focused and tend to gravitate towards things that are observable and measurable and understanding what's going on in people's lives. But changing cities and counties is political. It does require some political will from the top, and it, it requires some work to sustain beyond one political administration. And that becomes challenging as well, because you may have one administration who's very supportive, you know, a mayor in place for a while or person who's heading a county council who is very focused on this, but then they are not in power for very long and the next person may or may not have the same level of commitment. So that's a big factor for us. And I know you've you've run into that as anybody who works in city and county government does. Your advice is a good one though, which is to focus on the policies and procedures and practices in order to make change. So that's some good advice for us all to be thinking about. Amy, before you move on, let me also add that, again, listening to the people. So the qualitative data that we gather, things that we can observe, right, and actually centering the work on those that are most negatively impacted, if we're continuously listening to them, no matter our political leanings and no matter how political it can be, that should, I would hope that would be enough political will to, you know, move us forward. A city government is, you know, has responsibilities. And if they can admit and, you know, see and identify how they are harming or that they're treating a particular group differently than another group, they're allowing one group to benefit over other groups benefiting, that's not that's not in the charter of any particular you know government or their their constitution so there should be the political will to serve 
all of the folks in your jurisdiction, in your municipality. And to do that, you have to, again, focus on or center those that are most negatively impacted, because again, usually they're the ones that were not serving very well. So that's a good point. There's a couple of things I want to bring out in that. One is you mentioned earlier about this notion of sharing power. So it isn't only enough to listen. It is important to ensure that everyone is at the table for decision making and that they are part of the power process of deciding what actions take place in a community and what things and and how people are served. And then the other point you mentioned is when we talk about data, it is both qualitative and quantitative data that we need to include in any of our analysis and any of our thinking. And then the other point that I, I pull out of what you said, which is there is one place that almost everyone in county and city government can align, and that is an admission of service. Because most everyone chooses to work with city and county government to be of service to the community, and that is a common area that you can align around. And so when you can find those areas of common interest and common purpose, then that's a good place to work from with a larger group who may or may not have the same understanding or the same orientation to the community. So, uh, or the same experiences, the same life experiences. So those are all really good points that you bring out for us to think about. I want to go back to this question of reparations. So we talk about harm and certainly because of systems, policies, and practices, people have been harmed, and they have not been treated equitably in many communities. I won't say all communities, but all the ones I've looked at, that's true. There is some form of inequity. So in Asheville, you guys made national news on working in your efforts towards reparations. Talk a little bit about that, about how, because I know that happened on your watch while you were there. So talk a little bit about how you guys came to that conclusion how you thought of harm, and then also how you thought of taking action about that. Right. So let me start off by saying, although that work occurred while um, I was employed as the director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion in Asheville, North Carolina, I actually was not the driver of that work. Uh, I think some of it came from, or the, the decision to move forward came from some of the momentum of the work that I was doing in Asheville along with my team, but it really was driven by former council person Keith Young, who's of course an Asheville resident and was instrumental in there being an office of equity and inclusion. He helped to get it started as a council person, not only voted for it, but really pushed for there to be a, a, a person hired to, you know, create the budget for all of that. And so for the reparations piece or uh, work that was being done, from what I understand, Keith did a lot of work in community. He worked with community members and listened to them and to guide his, the, the reparations resolution that was key in moving that forward. And then I think he also worked really hard to collaborate with his other former council members to vote for the reparations bill, because if I remember correctly, it was a unanimous vote 
to move forward with that reparations resolution. I would say that the key for him or what was critical was that he is passionate about it. He saw a need. He saw that there was momentum talking about it in the community, talking about how we can move past uh, past harms, as well as what we can do to interrupt harms or disrupt the harms that are currently happening and wanted to do something about it. So I, for again, I think what was critical and key for him was working directly with community members, listening to them, sharing power with them to come up with the resolution, the wording of the, of the resolution, and then using his political stature and uh, strategy to bring along the other council members so that they could pass the reparations resolution. I will say, that once I, while I was still there, the resolution did state that the Office for Equity and Inclusion was supposed to lead the work and we were never invited or our leadership didn't, didn't involve us in any of it while I was still there. That brings up a couple of good points. So one, just let's talk about the reparations work in general, because one of the things that was interesting to me about Asheville's approach and is different from is being discussed in a lot of other communities is there weren't direct payments, as I understand. Asheville's resolution was more focused on overcoming some of the historical injustices that had happened related to development and growth of the city and to try to enact, as you said earlier, policies and practices that would, in fact, tilt the other way in terms of development and growth. Reparations can happen in lots of different ways. I personally don't agree with municipalities or governments that put together these additional programs necessarily, because it's these are things that the government entity should have been doing anyway. And so to call it, to couch it in, we're going to do this special thing uh, now, to me is a little disingenuous because the policies, practices, and procedures need to be changed. They just need to be changed so that there's less harm, so that we reverse or disrupt the harm. That's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take more than just changing policies for there to be reparations to repair a relationship. And and I would also go as far to say is there wasn't a relationship to repair because it's always been this way, right? So if we're thinking about going back to something, the only thing that we can go back to is very purposeful and intentional policies that separate African-Americans and Native American people it's just, it's, it's a much deeper subject than I think we can cover here, but I don't necessarily believe that programs that should already be a part of what a city government or a county government or a state government is doing needs to be considered reparations. Those are regular services, regular opportunities, regular funding that should just go to people because that's how cities and governments operate and serve their their populations. I think reparations means something more than that. 
So that's a good a good point to bring out where cities and counties communities may be thinking about reparations. They need to think about a spectrum of possible solutions or actions that they can take. And what you're saying is on the end where they are just, I would say, normalizing their policies and procedures to what they should have been before, that's certainly not reparations. Where they begin to put their finger on the scale in favor of a community that has been previously harmed That's probably not really reparations either. That is an action that a community could take and perhaps should take, depending on the degree of harm and the type of harm that's taken place. But then reparations is a bigger initiative even beyond that. And so what I hear you saying is when we talk about Asheville, they were somewhere along that spectrum. But as communities think about this, they should be thinking about where they want to find themselves and what they're objective really is, and they should be careful about the terminology they use, because that can also alienate people. If they're using terminology like reparations to take normal civic action, then that is certainly perceived negatively by those who are suffering that harm on a regular basis. So communities need to think along this spectrum, but they also need to think about the language that they're using when they take these actions. Is that a fair... I would say that's pretty fair way to um, kind of restate and bring out points of what I said. And I'd like to give an example. So if we're if if a city says that they're going to put together a fund that helps people um, helps people of color buy homes, right? Because we know that home ownership or land ownership is the largest way of building wealth in this country. Okay. That's all nice and good, right? But the fact remains that in Asheville, uh, in order for the interstate to come through, they, um, they or to build the interstate, they got rid of homes that were owned and took over land that was owned by Black people, right? And maybe some poorer people. And so how do you repair that, right? You can't. You can't go back and give them the land because now there's a freeway there. There's an interstate there. But how do you repair or give back to these these folks that have been harmed and their generations later where the wealth of the families is much less than it would have been, right? Money can definitely help to bring people up to bring those communities up to where they should where they should be but just a program to help them buy homes is not going to necessarily bring them to the place that they would have been had that wealth been in the family all these many decades and generations. So that's just one example of why I think, so I agree about the spectrum piece, and um, but that's one example of why I think regular homeownership programs, for instance, aren't necessarily the way to go and call and call them reparations. Yeah. So I would emphasize a couple of things in what you said. First, I would say, which you didn't say, I would say, stop doing harm. <laughs> so there was a recent article about some development that is happening near Charleston. And there is a sense, by some at least, 
that it is a continuation of what you just described happening today. So the first question is stop doing harm to certain Mm -hmm. communities. And so that's an important step for us all to take before we even think about reparations. And then the question of reparations, uh, your point is a good one, which is uh, wealth inequity is a big inequity in our society across many locations. And so it is multi-generation. So it is a complex subject to tackle. And it isn't, as you said, as simple as just having home ownership programs. It is more complex than that. The other thing that you talked about, because I love the example you gave, is you need to think about your own community's history. So get in touch with your local community's history. And again, it's by talking to people who have been marginalized or who have been impacted and understanding their history, because we are often not aware of the things that have gone on in our own communities, in our very own communities, down the street, around the corner, across town. We may or may not be aware of what happened 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, that set up the conditions that we currently all live in. So I think your point is a good one with the example of Asheville, which is understanding the very specifics of your own community's history. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, There's a lot of people that are living in homes today that are older homes in older neighborhoods that if they really looked at their the original deeds of those homes, they would see that there were, were covenants, race covenants, that said that folks could not own homes at that time. I was just in conversation with a city on the West Coast uh, yesterday that's looking to do more work in the, in the racial justice, racial equity, anti-racism area. And they were saying, you know, we didn't have a particular policy that said that we were a sundown town, which for folks that are listening that don't understand what a sundown town is, these were towns where if you were Black in the 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, anytime after slavery during Jim Crow, if you were Black, you could not be in town after the sun went down. It was your, your life was put on the line. Not, not only would you, could you be arrested, but you could also be lynched. This particular city, which again, I said is a West Coast city, said that you know we didn't have specific language in our policies around being a sundown town, but everything that you read about just the daily operations of that city or that town let you know that it was a sundown town, right? And so they are looking to uh, repair that harm that they were a part of as a city. And of course, none of the people that work there now were part of perpetuating a a sundown town, but they understand that they are they are of service of a community of the community as a whole, and they want to do something about you know repairing the harm that was done by the folks that were in power at that time. So, just another example of how how this work, how the uh, understanding of history and the localized history how racialized it it could have been or has been is important to really look at. Right. So talking to people who have been harmed by practices, not just policies. So we have to look beyond 
mm-hmm. policies and systems and look to practices. And the only way you really see historical practices is through reports that were taken uh, at the time or people who have been harmed by that, telling you their stories and sharing those stories with you. So it's it's a multi-layered and complex work mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. you're doing and that communities are embarking on, but it's so important. And I think one of the questions I want to ask you about, and this kind of leads into it, you know, this work is often quite messy and it is you feel like you take two steps forward and maybe 10 steps back. You'd uncover something that you didn't know about, which makes you feel like you've moved back when in fact it was always there, but your sense of where you are has changed. And everything doesn't go as you want it to go. It doesn't always work out the way that you think it should work out. And some of the things that you try may inflict new harms. So it is a a complicated and messy process. So can you share with us, because you have a unique experience where you've worked with multiple communities and you've been at this for a while, can you share with us some of the obstacles that, you know, communities might face or might have to confront and what advice you would give people to prepare for those or to help overcome some of those? Sure. I appreciate how you just described it. It's complex, multi-layered, and I have been in situations where we felt like we were moving forward, we've accomplished something great, and then there's a blow that takes us back. You know, we feel like we went back five steps instead of moving forward half a step or whatever. And so that that was a, a constant part of the process. Yes, I think that having leadership in your municipality or your institution, your organization, having leadership that understands that this is all about change management. It's about organizational change, culture change, and then operational change as well. But this is really change work. And change work takes time. And you have to have the buy-in of leadership and leadership has to have the fortitude, despite, as you talked about, as we talked about earlier, the political goings on to stay the course. And staying the course doesn't mean only trying one thing or trying something and sticking with it just because you want to, because you think it'll work. It means understanding that you have to stay in this work, that you have to keep walking on the journey, even if. You have to take pivots because something didn't work. And the way that you know that something different didn't work is because you're sharing power and you're listening to folks and you're trying things, right? And you innovate and you do this particular thing. You make these different changes and then find out, oh, it's not, it's not changing conditions for people. It's not changing people's lives. It's not impacting them in a positive way. So we need to try something else, right? It's an iterative process because it's and because it's so complex. It's not a straight line. It's not do this and then check that off and then do this and then check that off, right? It's much more uh, fluid than that. It's a cyclical process and that you continue, you have these like principles or 
tools that you can use. This is what we do is we teach a lot of the tools and the skills that are necessary to really analyze what's going on from this equity lens, this way of seeing the world in a way that shows who's benefiting, who's being burdened, and how they're being impacted, negatively impacted, and then again, centering on them. So fortitude, some patience, but patience sprinkled with a whole lot of sense of urgency, <laughs> if there is such a thing, if that makes sense, are necessary to do this work. And then understanding that, yes, you will feel as though a situations will come up where you feel as though you've been knocked backwards. But again, the fortitude and the, the will to serve that will move you forward, keep you moving forward to propel you towards success. Celebrate those successes as they happen, because again, if you get knocked backwards, you kind of lose sight of the successes that you've had. I think those are some things that cut across the different uh, jurisdictions or communities that I've worked with. And although, yeah, I, I do wanna go back and say again about the leadership piece, that's so important. A good leader not only talks the talk, but also walks the talk. I think it's important to make sure that if you are a leader, even if you don't know how to do this work, because not everybody does, but you provide the, the cover, the support, and be the champion that the work needs, which is, again, all based in change. This is change work. So that's a lot of good advice for our listeners all packed in to your response that you just gave. And I guess one of the things I just want to ask you as we end this discussion, I'd like to end on a personal note of for you is how do you personally remain encouraged and motivated for or heartened for this arduous work that you take on as part of your purpose and mission? So Amy, as you can see, I am a black woman who was raised in the United States by people who were raised in the southern, southeastern states of the United States and did not experience, have the greatest experiences as they lived their lives, grew up, etc. And as I said before, this is about service for me. So how I have figured out how to continue to do this work, to sustain myself in this work, is to create a community myself. So although I have my own consulting company and do a lot of uh, my work as a, as a solo principal consultant, I also have uh, partnered up with other folks that do this work and we are able to strengthen each other. I have a community or let's, that's, my, that's part of my community. Part of my community is a network of other racial equity leaders, sometimes called chief equity officers, you know, or directors, different titles, but with a lot of the same uh, responsibilities in different jurisdictions. I've met numerous people. We were a part of some learning groups, a community of learning. Those are the things that keep me 
kind of sane through this work because again, as a black woman, not only have I experienced some of the injustices, many of the injustices that that I'm fighting against, I'm also in the work, you know, doing the work at the same time. And so it's emotionally draining, it's mentally draining. So I also am a huge proponent of self-care, taking time away to do other things, to get your mind off of uh, situations of our communities, your own situation at times, my own situation at times. So I love the beach and I love warm weather. And so I take myself to those locations, change my environment so that I can really feel like I'm thriving and not just surviving through this work. And, I, and I'm a huge proponent of self-care in the networks and in the communities that I'm in of people that are doing racial equity work. We talk about it constantly and encourage each other and support each other in taking care of self first. I do believe that if I'm a glass and my glass is half empty, or half full because of the the emotional labor and uh, mental labor of this work, I won't have enough to keep it. If I don't have enough to keep it full, that is a loss for the community that I serve. And so I work really hard to keep it as full as possible. And those are the ways that I do it is by at least, one is by traveling and going to places that are warm and have beaches. That's some really good advice for all of us in this work because it is, as you said, demanding and tiring and frustrating to confront this every day. It's an important work, but it can be overwhelming. So what you just described is to find yourself or build yourself a community of like-minded people who are doing this kind of work and can be part of helping you shoulder that burden, then to partner with people to do the work that can make it easier and and more pleasurable, more positive experience, but then also to focus on self-care so that you make sure to fill up your own life so that you can pour back into this work what is necessary to move it forward. Ms. Kimberly Archie, thank you so much for talking with us today on State of Inclusion. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Amy. That was a great conversation with Kimberly Archie. She reminded us of so many important things. She told us that we should look inward first before we begin to look outward for change. Also that politics are important and are ever present, but it is policies, practices, and procedures that have done the harm, not the politics. She also reminded us that we should listen to those who have been harmed and who are marginalized and include them in the decision-making process and sharing power across all of the community. We also touched on the subject of reparations and it's such a big subject, so we just barely touched on it. But we did talk about a few things. First, that it exists along a spectrum and that merely doing things that the community should already be doing is not considered reparations. In addition to that, the first thing we should think about is to stop doing harm. If you found this episode of interest, you'll probably enjoy looking back to the episode that we did where I interviewed Davlin Hill, 
the episode Creating Community Conversations. We had a good discussion towards the end of that episode about what it means to share power. If you're interested in a practical example of how this could play out within a community, you'll be interested in listening to my upcoming episode with Joel Dock of Louisville, Kentucky. He is the coordinator for their land development reform project. He'll tell us about ways that they have chosen in Louisville to own their own community's history and to make that visible and to use that to make intentional and deliberate change within their community. This has been the State of Inclusion podcast. Join us again next time. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best compliment for our work is your willingness to share these ideas with others. So leave us a review. We'd love your comments. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.